Welcome, everyone. This is the Journal of African History podcast. And today I'm talking with two authors of an article entitled Moving Histories, Bantu Language Expansions, Eclectic Economies, and Mobilities that will be published in the first issue of 2023, issue 64-1. With me today are Professor Rebecca Grohlmund and Professor David Schoenbrunn. They are two of the three authors of this article. The third one is Jan Vansina, who probably needs no introduction. But let me give you brief introductions to the work of Professor Grohlmund and Professor Schoenbrunn. Professor Rebecca Grohlmund is Assistant Professor of Linguistics in the Department of English at the University of Missouri. She is the recipient of a very large NSF and NEH award to study a project entitled Continuity and Divergence in Cameroonian Languages, New Perspectives on the Bantu Genesis between 2022 and 2025. Professor David Schoenbrunn is a professor of African history at Northwestern University he is the author, most recently, of The Names of the Python, Belonging in East Africa, 900 to 1930, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2021 and winner of the Bethwell Ogot Book Prize in 2022. So welcome, Professors Grohlman and Schoenbrunn. We're excited to have you here today to talk about this new piece. Yes, thank you very much for this introduction, Marissa. And thank you for having us. Uh, we are very happy to be here to talk about the, the paper. So I thought I would begin by giving you my sort of quick read or my summary of the article. And I'll preface this by saying I work on a very different period in history. I'm an historian of, of modern Africa. You contextualize and parse a 2015 phylogenetic classification of Bantu languages that was in fact authored by Professor Grohlmund um, and a team of other researchers. Your article shows readers how the innovations over the past 25 to 30 years in computational methods that bring together historical linguistic, archeological and environmental data have refined our understanding of the dispersal of Bantu languages across five millennia. Your interpretation of the 2015 classification creates a clear sense of the movement of Bantu speakers with farming, certain forms of pottery production, or metalwork pushed more into the background. So you describe it as a kind of peeling motion. And it seems to me that you're arguing that the, the motion is clear, the chronology that this phylogenetic classification offers us is more concrete, but there's so much work to be done by historians and that we can't take this, this does not sort of substitute deep historical work. Um, so for example, on page four of the piece, you say, quote, our phylogenetic classification of Bantu languages encodes a sequence of language spread that must not be mistaken for history. It depicts the history of languages most directly, which must then be interpreted and qualified with new knowledge of what people were doing in the earlier African past, unquote. So in a sense, this is a tremendous appeal to other historians to enter the conversation and to look at this classification and to consider what we can do with this work produced through computational methods. Yes, we want to show two main things with this paper. 
First, that if we want to better understand the complex phenomenon such as the dispersal of Bantu speakers across sub-Saharan Africa, a multidisciplinary work is essential. The Bantu expansion that has started 5,000 years ago have always fascinated scholars coming from different fields, such as linguists, historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, scholars working on environment and geneticists. And the main reason for this fascination is that we want to understand how did a relatively young family, such as the Bantu family, have been able to spread so rapidly in such a, uh, in such a short time over Central, Eastern and Southern Africa. So scholars really try to better understand what triggered the Bantu expansion, what were the migratory routes, what was driven, uh, was the Bantu dispersal driven or not by agriculture and how Bantu speakers subsisted during this event. And so in order to do that, a multidisciplinary work is essential and that's why it's important to work with scholars from different fields. The second thing that we want to, that we try to show in the paper is that our understanding of the Bantu expansion has been intertwined with the evolution of historical linguistic method, classifying method, and of course, computational techniques that has arisen uh, 25 years ago. And so, yes, uh, the uh, innovation that has been made in computational method these past 25 years have helped a lot in order for us to better understand the Bantu expansion. And this is what we try to do and describe in this paper. We provide an overview of the progress made by historical linguists, but also computational techniques which have helped us to better understand how Bantu expansion has evolved. And it's true that before the arrival of the computational techniques, historical linguists also have their own techniques and have developed their own techniques in order to classify languages. Some of them were better than others. And with the, their techniques and results, they have been able to propose before the 21st century two main hypotheses explaining the Bantu expansion. The early split, where Bantu split into two migration waves at an early stage, with the first migration wave going at the north of the rainforest, whereas the other one was going southward. And the second hypothesis developed by historical linguists was the late split theory. In the late split model, Bantu expansion started in Cameroon. They, they went uh, south, bypassed the rainforest, and, and then they expand in the area that we know. And so this is what we knew basically before the 21st century. And that was very interesting, but this is uh, the two theories we had for the Bantu expansion. And with the development of the phylogenetic classification borrowed to the bio biology field, we have seen after the 21st century, uh, we have seen an increase of uh, linguistic classification using classif uh, these computational techniques, not only for Bantu, but also for other language families. So one question that you might ask is why? And the answer is that we, during the past two centuries, we have seen many analogies between how languages are evolving and how species are evolving. And one thing that we have observed is that languages like biological species, in most cases, we can trace back ancestral form from which they have evolved by a process of descent with modification. So basically what we have learned is that species and languages evolve the same way. And therefore, by extension, we can use the same techniques in order to classify languages. And so thanks to this analogy, many 
scholars who are working like in evolutionary biology and computational techniques try to apply their techniques to linguistic data. At the very beginning of the, of the 21st century, one story that I can tell you is that historical linguists were very annoyed by the, this phenomenon. They were very annoyed by the fact that uh, scientists like people coming from biology were making linguistic classification. So there was like some rejection about the technique, but uh, I have a more uh, nuanced and a more balanced opinion about that. I do think that on one hand, yes, it can be problematic for scholars who don't know anything about linguistics, languages, the languages that they are studying to make classification and to apply this technique to linguistic data. And therefore, uh, this is what we explain in the paper, they have done some mistakes in the sampling, their conclusions were lacking of depth because they didn't know anything about the language family. So you can see that we can have some problems when people like that are making classification. But on the other hand, thanks to the fact that they have developed the technique and applied them to the languages, we have made huge progress in historical linguistics. And I think the, the techniques that they have developed have been uh, perfect languages in a better way. And at the beginning, these techniques were more simple, so they were only allowed like a certain number of languages. And we have seen that throughout the years, phylogenetic techniques have been more complex, and we have been able to incorporate more things like more parameters, like the gain of loss of words. Thanks to uh, the development of historical linguistics method, classifying method, we have been able to make some huge progress in uh, better understanding the Bento expansion. I think I'll circle back to answer Marissa's question and say, yeah, I think that you, you did a great job of summarizing it at, at, at the highest level, what, what the paper argues. I especially appreciate the quote that you decided to, to, to read aloud, because I think it provides a point of departure to what Rebecca just said, which is that while all, all of the advances that she just described are, are extremely important, in lending a flexible specificity to classification. In other words, the last point you just made about all the different parameters you can put in or out of different models allows you to produce very, very complex kinds of trees. But that should never be the last word. That really is just the beginning of all the difficulties and interesting stuff for historians, as opposed to all the other kinds of specialists that Rebecca just mentioned. And this is, of course, the whole reason why we thought this paper should be published in the Journal of African History. Most of the readership is going to be historians, of course, and probably most of those people are going to be working in the modern period, like Marissa does. So I would underscore to those readers, then, the, the ways in which this article tries to argue to you modernists that there's a lot to learn about how Africans uh, discovered their own continent, if you want to put it in those terms. Uh, hidden in this in, in this rubric that's called Bantu expansions. And, and while uh, this can be lost sight of it, uh, in, in the hail of, of, of technical language and jargon and all the rest of it that comes along with some of the methodologies, but the, the, the essay takes pains to point out, for example, that it, it, it's very dangerous to think about the Bantu expansions in, in simplistic registers as being accomplished by embodied individuals, for example, who all spoke only one language, or who practiced only one kind of economy, or who moved over African geographies at one rate of movement. And these are all things I think most modernist historians would take for granted in thinking about how social process unfolds. These are, there's nothing special here. But these are the very questions that have not actually been addressed in any detail by people who insist 
studying the entire question of the Bantu expansions in one go, the, this gigantic primary narrative, the sweeping story that, that you encounter in reading this essay. At the top of Rebecca's comments, she suggests that the story of the Bantu expansions is a relatively short story, as it were, that the Bantu language family is actually, is actually quite young. When, of course, most readers of Journal of African History never think about a time period as long as 5,000 years, as if they could make some kinds of statements about what might have happened over such a vast period of time involving such vast numbers of different individuals. So here you come, you come to one of the most important challenges here, which is that most historians of the continent don't think in the same kinds of registers about how change happens or even what it is we're talking about when we're talking about the subject of change. Most linguists are studying language, not people. And most historians are studying people and not language. This is a distinction that many scholars have made in the past, but it, it easily gets lost in the way that we start talking about things like the Bantu expansion. Readers might be forgiven for thinking that, that, that we envision speakers of Bantu languages as belonging to some kind of bounded groups, uh, dare I say ethnic groups. This is a very common error. There is no evidence in anything that we're saying that would invite you, the reader, to think of these subgroups and different speech communities as forming ethnic groups. That would be a grave error. However, it's clear that in order to make the kinds of statements that Rebecca just made uh, about the integrity of the Bantu field, that is to say the ways in which all Bantu languages are related to one another, tells you that there has been continuous use of those languages by stable communities of one sort or another over countless generations. And that's the important point, I think, of common ground for uh, specialists like historical linguists and, and other historians like the readers of the Journal of African History in approaching this, this topic of the so-called Bantu expansions. The thing I'll say on this score is we're not just talking about people speaking Bantu languages moving over the surface of Africa. We're also talking about pre-existing communities of speakers of enormous diversity and difference adopting uh, Bantu languages over time. And so this is another thing that the readers need to remember, that hidden in this story, and sometimes it can be very, very difficult to, to extract this from the language evidence, is a story of enormous pre-existing linguistic and cultural diversity on the continent. The Bantu expansions almost never occurred in areas where there weren't already people speaking their own languages, whether they were, whether they were earlier arrived Bantu speakers or people who speak the languages of completely different language families, some of which probably no longer exist. And if you look at the genetic information that scholars have, have begun to develop for the continent, you can see lots of evidence that of how true this was. If you think Africa is linguistically and culturally a diverse place now, it's nothing compared to what it was before these kinds of expansions actually took place. So that's another important point to get across. I think so many of us, we teach Bantu expansions, right? That's where we encounter the material. It's not the area of our own research. And I think it is confounding for, for exactly the reasons that you've pointed out, right? This just what feels like a huge chunk of time, this difference between how to distinguish between languages and people and how we are still so tied to the very units, the nation state, which haven't even endured anything really but centuries. Those are the ones that, you know, it's so hard to get ourselves, not to mention students, to think outside of those kinds of categories. And that's why I think this work is, is so, so compelling. 
think this is very important for, for teaching uh, students, well, even for, for professional historians to think through. You know, hidden in the comment Mercer just made about the hegemonic status of the nation state as our, our organizing approach to thinking about the continent, it is the ethnic group. And when you look at the ways in which, it, let's just go straight to South Africa, that, that a label like Bantu has been implicated in the construction of various kinds of racial states, it becomes very difficult for most people who encounter this topic not to think partly in those terms. And so, you know, at many points in this essay, we're pushing back on this and, and really trying to invite readers not to think of Bantu language groups as having any kind of social cohesion unto themselves. That is something that needs to be demonstrated historically. Now, it can be and has been by, by other scholars, but we do not start there. And I think that makes it in some sense even more confusing to students. Well, then what kind of social group are we talking about? And it's the, it's the painfully vague speech community, the community of people like us who are now speaking English for a period of time. Any one of us could switch into another language and immediately exit that speech community without moving anywhere. By emphasizing multilingualism in our study, and there's good historical linguistic evidence that this was a prominent feature throughout the history of the expansions of Bantu languages, we're saying, hey, Africans did this too, all the time. Did everybody do it under all circumstances? No. And there were ample warnings, again, in the essay about the very different circumstances under which multilingualism might have been favored or forces pushing against it might have, been unfold, might have unfolded. I don't want readers to think we're talking about bounded ethnic or social groups when we're talking about, about subgroups. Th these are features of elements of language that are being compared. You know, if we emphasize loan words, for example, or other kinds of innovations, and you get an opposite vision. You can't talk about descent with modification there. You're talking about lateral transmissions and, and cultural effects that are taking place synchronously across linguistic communities. So do you have any word of the wise about how to present this kind of material to students? Well, I first try to get them to, to understand how you can use contemporary language evidence to make statements about the distant past. So just, just I put a map up on uh, and show them the distribution of all the different ways Bantu speakers uh, express the meaning person and how widely distributed those are across the continent and then ask the students to explain how that could actually be so. How is it that you could get words that look and sound kind of the same spoken in Cameroon, tall South Africa, and in Kenya, and in Namibia? Uh, how could that be? You know, did somebody get up one day and rush to the four corners of the continent and teach everybody who lived there that this is how you're going to say the word person? Of course, that's absurd. So they have to think through for themselves what's implicated in that simple fact, say, in the present. Sounds like a great place to start. This article and the work both of you do and have done brings together such a huge amount of research in different areas, right? Linguistics, archaeology, history, genetics, paleontology. I'm sure there's lots that I'm missing. And this was a, a collaborative piece. One of the co-authors has since passed, Jan Vencina. So could you talk a little bit about how this collaboration came about and why you think collaborative work is important, given that in the JAH and other historical journals, we tend to really publish single authored pieces. That tends to be the, the way that work is done and the way that you know work is evaluated for, for reasons of promotion and tenure at institutions for, for historians and, and in the humanities in general. What does, what is, 
specific about this kind of work? What is the, why does it demand collaboration? Maybe that's pretty clear. Um, but what are some of the opportunities that collaboration presents that might be intriguing to, to other historians? So in my field, collaborative work is something that I'm doing all the time. I'm always collaborating with people coming from different fields, because if we just focused on linguistic results, then you are missing a big part of the, the rest. If you focus just on one discipline, then you don't have the full story, don't have the full explanation of what you are looking for. If you are asking a question, how the Bantu expansion started, uh, what, why are these people are in contact, what is happening, you have to have a view that is going to help you. And I remember that when Jan Van Sina looked at the classification, he just saw things that I didn't understand. I, for me, it was just a tree showing me how languages are diverging with some timing. And when I showed, showed him this, he was just like, wow, I, uh, thanks to your classification, I'm, I am understanding new things about the Bantu history and things like that. And so collaborative work for me is really important. You asked a couple of questions, Marissa. One was about how the, this particular collaboration took form. I mean, for obvious reasons, not something that can be copied. Certainly not the ideal. The ideal, and I'm sure that in Rebecca's case, this is a big part of what goes on before a piece is published, is there's all sorts of back and forth and arguing and explaining what you're thinking and how your concepts work. And for people who write in the sciences, of course, there, there are established practices you know, right there on the first page of a publication explaining precisely which parts of the article you're about to read, which person wrote. So this collaboration can also be broken out. It's much more like working in a kitchen. If you ever worked in a restaurant, you know, the, the plate of food that gets onto the table is made by a bunch of different people. Even if the server brings it out, it looks like a ta-da moment. Well, for the kind of work that Rebecca's doing, that's exactly how it happens. That's true for historians also. This fetishizing of the single author is something that's always seemed bizarre to me. When, when we work in universities where we cheek by jowl with people who do not write in that particular register, it says something about the history of producing original knowledge that I think has its origins back in the performative qualities of, of various kinds of humanistic practices, maybe in the Middle Ages or whatnot. I'm sure it has a European root. Even in African practices of oral performance, uh, it's always understood, in my experience, that the, the individual performer is not to be taken seriously as an individual performer, but as a participant in a tradition of performance in which the audience plays an integral role, right, in crafting and constructing what it is that's actually going to be performed. This single author fetish thing, I think, is very much an artifact of how the university has developed uh, in the global north. It makes it easier on administrators to judge the, the benefit and value of the labor of some of the people that they pay. And I think there's a lot of good political reasons to push back hard on this for Africanists, who, who, most of whom continue to be outsiders to the continent and rely in profound ways on, on the help of Africans, many of whom have no connection to universities whatsoever. And we, you know, we refer to this in our acknowledgments and we thank people as much as we can. And yet there is no way, except for your own individual ethics, to funnel back to the people who made your work possible uh, some of the fruits uh, that, that you enjoy because of this, the single authorship. At the very least, with the multiple authors, you, you, some of that's being funneled out uh, a little more effectively. So th that's my rant about the single author thing. But really, the value of collaboration is in having to explain the stuff that you take for granted to other people who are very smart, 
but spend a lot of time thinking about other stuff. And then on the other side, you get to ask them questions about stuff you've always wondered. What did, what do you mean uh, You know, when you work with this particular kind of concept? And this is one of the things that, ex- that interested me about getting involved with this project. Now, let's just remember that the first draft of this essay was, was put together by Vansina uh, in 2016. I had no involvement in that whatsoever. I did happen to, to meet with Jan uh, in April of that year. He was quite ill at that time. He had come across uh, Rebecca's classification and had a lot to talk to me uh, about that that classification had, had stimulated him to think about, as Rebecca just shared herself. So he was very excited by, the, by what he saw this classification causing us to rethink. And this is von Sina's, uh, I think, one of the trademarks of his scholarship. He's very excited. Uh, he was always excited at the possibilities of sort of blowing everything up and rethinking stuff from the ground up. And I think he saw in Rebecca's team's classification the chance to do this. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds here. You can read the essay and, and, and see for yourself exactly what, what I'm talking about. But it did it had to do, for example, with reaffirming some issues that were long important to him, which did not focus endlessly uh, on the use of metals in agriculture and understanding how languages spread and change. It's something he wrote about many years ago uh, in Azania in a piece called A Slow Revolution. Uh, but also the, the, to take seriously the the relationship between the sequence of language uh, divergences that Rebecca's tree depicts and the archaeological record is 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 not clear in the way that, that scholars have, have taken it to be clear, my, myself included, for example, in, in earlier periods of my own scholarship. And I think that's what really got him excited because it raised real questions about the chronology of the Bantu expansions in the eastern half of the continent, precisely the part of the continent where that chronological question had sort of felt to be settled. So this, again, this is, I think, one of the ways in which Jan's voice really comes alive in this piece, despite the fact that he did not participate in, in any of the revising. He, he just drafted the first draft. I was one of the readers. Uh, and then I tried to read as quickly as possible. I knew how ill he was. We all did. But he didn't have a chance to respond to the readers reports. And it was at that point that the editors invited me to get involved. And then Rebecca and I did a lot of work on it. I was in the middle of finishing a book of my own. I couldn't get right to it. This is one of the reasons why it's taken more than six years for this thing to, to see the light of publication. I think it's important for, for, for listeners to know that. It's like a really long time. And I had to get up to speed. I hadn't been thinking about this kind of stuff for a long time. because my, my recent work is not situated in the, in the distant, distant past. So I had a lot of learning to do. And I would just like to, to give a shout out to the, to the archaeologist who was, who, was, who was brought in in the second round of readers' reports. This is a perfect example of where peer review is indispensable to making something work. That archaeologist provided me with all sorts of citations and places to go and read and think that I would have never had the time to figure out myself. So I'm really, really grateful to that person. I think I know who you are, but thank you. Thanks for making so many important points in your in your intervention, David. I appreciate the rant and also underscoring how long collaboration can take and how long I think good work takes. And of course, the tremendous importance of peer review and peer reviewers who are increasingly hard to find for very good reasons, right? As many people protest the uh, labor conditions in, in institutions. I think that 
it's really lovely to also see a piece with, you know, not just you know, so much multidisciplinary input and collaboration, but across um, different generations of scholars. I think that in itself is also really, really important. And I love that you underscored Vencina's excitement. Rarely do we get to feel the excitement. I think when we open up journal articles, sometimes they feel they feel stayed. But it's good to be reminded of the the energy and and the passion people bring to the work that they do, and to see that come out in the in the pieces and in the interactions between people. I'm wondering if you either of you want to say briefly what you think are the sort of new directions for research in this area. When we do some classification, they are based the study of lexicon. Generally, we work from 100 to 200 words, but lexicon is just one aspect of linguistics. And so the next step is try to combine more different types of data. And there is this new trend uh, right now in historical linguistics and in Bantu historical linguistics is to try to combine lexical data with the study of sound changes, you know, a refine our, our understanding of the classification. And this is something that we have started right now with uh, several colleagues, uh, with David, which has Gerard Philipson, Derek Nurse, and Braden Brown. And we have collected phonological data. Phonological data are things, for example, if, uh, Middle English with English spoken right now, but, uh, you're going to see some sound changes. Like, for example, before the word for house was pronounced, pronounced whose, the word for mouse was pronounced moose. And so what we are trying to do, we are trying to collect the same types of data for uh, Bantu languages, building databases and everything. And then we're going to try to see if studying and focusing on sound changes is going to help us to refine the subgroupings. And if it does, it's going to refine to help us to refine our understanding of the groupings in the Bantu languages. So this is my next step with David and other colleagues. Yeah, I think it may sound funny to say this, as a point of departure from what Rebecca just said, it's quite possible that the, that the tree that is produced, in fact, it's not just possible, it seems quite likely that the tree that's produced by this new focus on phonology is going to be different, going to involve different branches and different splits. That is not an indictment of this method. That does not suggest we're confused and don't know what we're doing. It tells you just how complicated the story really is and that it's a little ridiculous to be choosing uh, zero-sum uh, answers to how to tell the story about the Bantu expansions, like whether there was a deep split or a late split, or that kind of thing. And you can see us pushing against this a little bit in the essay as it unfolds. I hope it doesn't seem confusing to the readers of it that we're actually kind of at places sort of undercutting the the the, the certitude of the of the classification that we're presenting. So we're reminding some Rebecca's of something at the top that's very important. That and all that fancy graphic, all that 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 powerful sweeping history of the spread of the languages rests on the analysis of a tiny universe of meanings, which doesn't mean that it doesn't tell us something about the past. It simply means that what it tells us about the past is very limited. This is something that his, all historians should be comfortable with. They should not treat this as an indictment of what we're doing. They should, make, they should treat it as a way in which it's very recognizable to them. The partiality of our focus, the choices that were made by the focusing on so-called core vocabulary, the vocabulary that's the least susceptible to being borrowed from different languages is meant precisely to track a certain kind of genetic relationship, the most conservative, if you will. Phonology could even be said to, to, to move any, it's still further in that direction. It's being even more conservative because less likely to be affected by the sociological processes that affect vocabulary. 
So I would say another direction for new research would be to go in the opposite direction, to look more carefully at things like multilingualism, at things like reconstructing cultural vocabulary, not just core vocabulary. And that would be that would bring out more of the richness of the context in which individual speakers were making choices about which languages to use, what things to talk about, uh, and with what kinds of consequences, all of which can be measured in the in the language record. A. B, it's going to make it a lot easier to think in careful ways about how the story that we're telling about language diversification fits with the archaeological and increasingly large genetic evidence, which would be very limited ability to do that if you're just looking at the slow stuff, because our geneticists and archaeologists, of course, are uncovering many different kinds of evidence. Not It's harder for them to narrow in and narrow down and focus on a one kind that doesn't change very fast, like linguists can do. This is where borrowing ideas from evolutionary biology puts, puts us at a disadvantage. And actually, we might want to you know, go back to where we were much earlier in, in the development of this subfield and, and, and think with archaeologists a lot more. I, it would have been great if we could have roped an archaeologist in to this. I, I've just finished writing a piece with Akino Gundaran, for example, on the history of technology in Africa. And it was very important to work with an archaeologist who's also an historian, spent a lot of time hanging around archaeologists. I don't do excavations myself, but I have a very intimate knowledge of what it is they do. You know, this is circling back to the collaboration question that, that Marissa uh, spoke to, and I think that, that, that this is where it's important for you to recognize the limitations you have, but always be trying to find other people who you can bring on board to think in new ways about the evidence that you're, that you're talking about. What Rebecca's getting into now with Gerard and others is very important. It's always been there, but it's, it's very important for them to focus tightly on it, and it's going to create a different tree. And we hope that what we can get people to do with all of that is not get confused and frustrated, but to recognize that, yeah, we're just now finally beginning to bring to bear all the powerful tools that are available to us to tell what has always been a very complicated story. I think it's amazing to think about the ways in which it makes the past feel appropriately so unstable and that there's so much contingency. And that, in fact, does feel, I think, familiar to historians of more more recent periods of time. Um, and I, that's one of the things that I appreciate about your piece, right? It makes it it puts that up front as opposed to these kind of stories that we sort of stand up and tell about the, you know, the direction, the movement, what's going on there, and, the, and trying to offer a solid sense of that. The instability and the complexity of it actually, I find tremendously inviting. So I wanted to just wrap up by asking you if there's any question that you wanted to answer that I didn't ask. I just want to thank David for the help he has provided with uh, this piece because, yes, without him, I wouldn't have been able to finish what Diana uh, started. It was my pleasure. Um, uh, I, my biggest regret with all this is I did not actually have a chance to have a sustained argument with Jan over this or that element of the interpretation. And people who know his work intimately will, I hope, clearly see where his voice is there in the text, unchanged from the original draft that was sent to the Journal of African History. There are plenty of, of passages that are as they were. Uh, and yet there's a lot of stuff that I put in there too. I, I don't know what he would have thought of that. So again, this is what's misleading about this collaboration. Since Jan passed away in February of 2017, he wasn't able you know, to push back on some of the interpretations that, that I introduced into the essay. So I Honored to be associated with the project, but also just want to remind readers that, that Jan's voice stopped uh, being present in the piece uh, with its first first drafting. And we tried to keep as much of that there as we could. 
Maybe the other thing I would I would emphasize here, and this is a little bit the weeds, but I think it really is important, that some of the key conditioning factors shaping the spread of language change over time, we are saying in this essay are not, uh, this is harkening back to what Ramesa just said about the contingency question. For example, agriculture. There's plenty of archeological evidence that, one, that, that once people became farmers, they didn't stay farmers. The ones people for many, 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 for long spans of time, it really takes a long time for a certain sort of economic profile to get to gel and get people stuck in it. Um, so that's another, the use of metals, the same kind of thing. There's a kind of teleological assumption that's very common in students and it's distressingly common in professional historians that it's, it's obvious that once people encounter things like farming and metals that they will, they will stick with those things. But there's abundant evidence, linguistic and archaeological, that's not the case. And so this is an important thing to remind people here is you have an opportunity to rethink some of the assumptions that you work with at, at a hegemonic level about what constitutes engines of historical change over time. And agriculture and metal technologies are big players in this kind of thing. And that, that just really this story of the Bantu expansions is a story about how untrue that is until the latter stages. For modernists, the latter stages of the last thousand years, that's a very long time. But for the first four millennia of this story, there's all sorts of fits and starts and back and forth, and, and economic eclecticism is a much more appropriate way of thinking about it. Well, we invite all the readers of the Journal of African History and all the listeners of our podcast to take a look at the article by Rebecca Grohlman, David Schoenbrunn, and Jan Vencina, Moving History. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.